So the 1920s were a period of musical, cultural, economic, emotional and emotional turmoil around the world. In cultural histories of New Zealand, however, much of this turmoil is absent. Also frequently absent is the idea that New Zealand had any entertainment industry. As a result, a myth has propagated that New Zealand closed at five and was a boring place with no entertainment, except perhaps a sedate brass band or orchestra. Certainly, it couldn't possibly have had jazz. This is generally the first question I get when I say, I research jazz. People say, there was jazz in New Zealand? <laughs> in this presentation, I'm going to explore 1920s New Zealand through the lens of jazz, which, yes, was very much present in our flourishing, vibrant urban landscape that most emphatically did not close at five. As much as this presentation disrupts certain myths about New Zealand history, it also disrupts the canon of jazz history outside the United States. As this is not a story of New Zealanders receiving jazz from the source, nor is it one that venerates American jazz. So what was jazz? These days, we tend to think of jazz as music specifically, but in the 1920s, jazz was so much more. It was dance, both specific dances and a general dance style. And you're going to see me dancing a little bit here and there throughout this presentation because jazz was meant to be danced to. And I'd like to invite you all to feel free to join in <laughs> if you so desire. Doesn't even have to be an actual foxtrot or the Charleston. I mean, this floor's not that great for Charleston. But, you know, just bop around a bit. It was also fashion, design, art deco, otherwise known as jazz moderne, emotions, a type of disreputable person, and a fashionable buzzword attached to everything from hair products to handkerchiefs to cake. Bear in mind that what jazz looked and sounded like in the 1920s was vastly different from our perceptions today. Jazz was the latest pop culture entertainment in the 1920s and 30s, but in New Zealand, it was somewhat amorphous. What jazz was, was not yet fixed in, or developed in performers' or audiences' minds. These many facets of, of the jazz concept were important factors in how jazz was received and perceived in New Zealand during the 1920s and how they formed the jazz of the Kiwi Jazz Age. But of course, to have a jazz age, you need jazz. So how did jazz get here? New Zealand, frankly, is um, at the end of the earth. Uh, and while there were plenty of connections with the rest of the world by the 20th century, we were and are physically very far away from everything. Because of this distance, however, New Zealanders have desired connections to the rest of the world and have liked to be up to date in the latest entertainment trends. Jazz arrived in New Zealand in many ways, from returning servicemen and women um, from coming home from World War I, via merchant ships and steamers, through sheet music, word of mouth, vaudevillian acts, and the new entertainment technologies, radio, records, and film. To paraphrase Chris Burke from his book, Blue Smoke, jazz was like a virus. In the late 1910s, it seemed to sprout up everywhere, and nothing anyone did could get rid of it. Now these days, we tend to think of records as being the way that jazz was imported. The record is the artifact in jazz, in the same way that the facsimile manuscript is for classical music. However, in 1920s New Zealand, theatre, sheet music and radio were all equally important because of the convoluted method of importing records to New Zealand and the various tariffs that were applied to them. 
As you can see here, the importation of records to New Zealand was heavily mediated through numerous agents before arriving in the retail store. To give you an example, the first official jazz recordings by the original Dixieland Jazz, with two S's, not Z's, band, were made in February 1917. Livery Stable Blues on the B-side, uh, the Dixie Jazz Band One Step. But this record wasn't imported into New Zealand until 1922 because of those previous um, mediations that I mentioned. So here is the Livery Stable Blues. Um, I, I played this um, on the radio yesterday with uh, Jesse Mulligan and a bit of audience feedback was somebody had to turn off the radio because their dog kept, kept howling at it. <laughs> I should also mention that the, uh, the alternate title for this is Barnyard Blues, so that gives you an idea. You can see why the dog was howling. note, Livery Stable Blues was anything but a hit here. In fact, most of the copies were returned to the importer A.H. Nathan to be junked. <laughs> the convoluted way that records arrived here and when meant that there were odd gaps in what was available um, to New Zealanders. However, recordings by other American, British and European jazz bands had been imported to New Zealand as early as 1919. Now, sheet music was also a very important way um, of, uh, in the early years rather, of jazz in New Zealand. But it doesn't really give musicians an idea of how it's meant to sound. Imagine trying to identify the sound of jazz rhythms from this. Traditionally in jazz, there are no visual indicators in sheet music about the rhythmical subtleties. And this makes it very difficult for somebody who does not have an oral concept of jazz to interpret the sound from the page. 
So this score of Yes Sir, That's My Baby, which was a very popular jazz song, Foxtrot and Charleston from 1925, is from a dance music folio and is typical of the type of scores people played from in the 1920s. If I clap the rhythm of the chorus, it sounds pretty boring actually. But listen to this recording by Lee Morse in 1925. Who's that coming down the street? Who's that looking so petite? Who's that coming down to meet me here? Who's that you know who I mean? Sweetest who you've ever seen? I could tell him miles away from here. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, don't see maybe. Yes, sir, that's my baby now. Yes, ma'am, Yes, ma'am, you're invited now. By the way, oh, by the way, when we Some very early vocal improvisation. version of the same song by Ray Tellier and his San Francisco Orchestra, also from This is actually quite fast for a foxtrot. Think of it more like a quick step. That's where quick step actually comes from, the jazz foxtrot. Thank you. 
So as you can tell, both of these versions of, in the recording are rather different from what is actually written on the page. Um, also note that the sounds of the bands are quite different from our modern perception of what trad or Dixieland jazz sounds like. So oral interpretations are vital for people learning jazz, and in 1920s New Zealand, this support came from the theatre and from radio broadcasts. Theatre and radio were particularly important to the importation of jazz to New Zealand. Jazz acts on the vaudeville circuit were many and varied in both music and dance. Now, although um, theatrical jazz was considered considerably different from that found in the dance hall or cabaret, both in terms of style and function, incipient jazz musicians could use theatre jazz to discover how things were meant to sound. Until the late 1920s, radio was just as much a novelty as jazz was. Officially, you had to purchase a licence to listen to the radio, but much like modern music piracy, there are always ways and means. In 1925, there were only 4,702 listening licenses in New Zealand, but by the end of the decade, there were 58,597. Of course, these numbers also underrepresent the number of people potentially listening to the radio. Headsets can be shared, amps and speakers can fill up a room, a hall, or a shop. In the 1920s, radio was a mix of live performance, either in the studio or relayed from another venue, such as a cabaret, and recordings. And jazz, of course, being the latest pop music, was a regular feature. By the second half of the 1920s, radio technology had improved so much that when the weather was right, it became possible for New Zealanders to listen in to broadcasts from Australia, Southeast Asia, as far north as Shanghai and Tokyo, the Americas, on really fine days, as far across as New York, but more realistically, the West Coast, from Vancouver down to Santiago, and even occasionally parts of Europe. By listening into broadcasts from other countries, New Zealand musicians and fans shaped their perceptions of jazz. So now that you have an idea of how jazz got here and what and how jazz was broadly conceived, Let's get into the actual Kiwi Jazz Age, starting with music and dance. Jazz, music and dance was a great shock to New Zealand society. It was exotic and primitive. It was noisy, anarchic, frivolous, intoxicating and fun. It seemed to encourage young people to go out unchaperoned, and the style of dancing associated with it was considered one step away from sex in many people's minds. In short, jazz became a symbol of every threat to social order. Jazz was already established in New Zealand by 1920. Our first jazz band, the Bob Adams Jazz Band, was formed in Auckland in 1918 and was quickly emulated with other jazz bands around the country. Jazz featured at dance halls and cabarets, such as the Cabaret Club at the Goring Street Hall here in Wellington. It also featured at carnivals and picnics, such as the 1920 Victory Gala and Venetian Confetti Carnival um, held at Lyle Bay. Although the jazz and jazzing, that is to say jazz music and jazz dance, happened after dark so as not to corrupt impressionable minds. Dedicated jazz venues arrived in the early 1920s with the establishment of the Christchurch Jazz Club's Winter Garden. The Christchurch Jazz Club was a club to dance to jazz, not to listen to jazz. The Winter Garden, which was opened in September 1921 on Armagh Street in Christchurch, 
was a sophisticated dance hall that catered to jazz fans six nights a week. The other night may have been the Sabbath, but it was usually used for private functions and was still operating. They employed the best jazz bands from around Canterbury and also held dance classes to teach people the latest jazz steps. Within a year of the opening of the Winter Garden, Auckland had the Dixieland Cabaret, billed as the most sophisticated jazz venue in New Zealand. The Dixieland catered to the young smart set with jazz bands from Australia and New Zealand, a soda fountain, a fresh juice maker, and a 3,000 square foot dance floor. The Dixieland even boasted a special balcony area for chaperones so they could keep an eye on proceedings. And you can see that balcony just at the back of that photo there. Relay broadcasts from dance halls and cabarets of local jazz bands were features of every major radio station in New Zealand from as early as 1923. For those people with listening licenses, or the ability to listen in, this was another way of hearing jazz and being able to dance to it. By 1927, jazz on the radio was so popular that there were jazz radio parties for people at home or in a dance hall to dance to. These, these jazz parties ranged from using bands in the studio or relaying them from particular venues or, venue or venues in the manner that was similar to the later make-believe ballroom format for those of you who are old enough to know what that is. In cabarets and dance halls, jazz added the perception of glamour and a certain raciness to people's lives and was thought to lead to scandalous behaviour. Although New Zealand did not have a prohibition against alcohol, dance halls, cabarets and other such venues were dry, meaning only non-alcoholic drinks could legally be consumed. However, this didn't stop patrons or the venues from bending or outright breaking that law. The Dixieland, in particular, was in trouble several times over allowing its patrons to consume alcohol on the premises. And where there was one vice, there was always more. <laughs> the jazz scene also supposedly allowed people to partake in the shadier side of life, as these venues became places at which one could easily acquire alcohol, drugs or sex. The headline here is from an article in the New Zealand Truth in 1926, in which a public guardian investigated the activities at the Dixieland and found drunken, uh, drunken antics and young women, quote, disporting themselves with careless attitudes on divans and chairs in the cabaret cuddle cubicles, end quote. I love New Zealand truth. It's so great. Jazz as music was fast-paced, inducing a sense of excitement and containing exotic sounds. To some, the sounds were barbarous and primitive, a crime against good music. But to others, the sounds fulfilled a need for modernity, excitement, liberation, cosmopolitanism and exoticism. Jazz was the way musicians used rhythm and tempo, the combination of instruments in a band and the sounds of those instruments. It was the novelty effects, such as the talking mutes that we heard in Livery Stable Blues and various percussive sounds that musicians applied to the music to make it jazzy. And finally, of course, in music, jazz was also improvisation. It's very important to remember that in this initial phase of acquisition, say 1917 to 1927, New Zealanders didn't consider jazz to be an American music, let alone an African-American music. There was a lot of mystery about where it actually came from. And the way that jazz music came here was really disconnected from its cultural and musical origins. 
to New Zealanders of this period, really until the 1940s, and obviously the American uh, res military residents here, jazz was um, a, a, an exotic music of multiple origins. It was as French and English, British colonial Asian and Australian as it was American. Unfortunately, I can't really tell you what locally produced jazz sounded like because there are no commercial recordings from the 1920s you know, from New Zealand. If there are any private ones that are still extant, I haven't found them yet. The closest recording I have for you to get an idea about what jazz sounded like down at this end of the world is the first recording of a, an Australian jazz band from 1926 by Sidney Simpson and his Wentworth Cafe Orchestra with the tune Freshie. <laughs> refers to a freshman at university. This is an American song, obviously, so um, everyone was hating on the young freshmen because they were, you know, little snotty toe rags, basically. <laughs> so while there isn't any, uh, there aren't any New Zealand recordings of jazz from as it was performed in the 1920s, local music did make an appearance on the global jazz stage when Bert Ralton and his world-famous Savoy Havana band from London, as in the Savoy Hotel, included Pokhara Karyana in their 1926 recording, Mari Hula Medley. 
Um, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a melange. Um, Ralton toured New Zealand at the end of 1924 and the beginning of 1925 on the J.C. Williamson vaudeville circuit, the first time a really big name jazz band had, uh, had come to New Zealand. And they were a hit with local audiences. So much so that after their vaudeville contract ended, they remained in New Zealand for a further two months, performing at cabarets and film theatres in, as interval entertainment. This recording is interesting because it's probably the first time that a Māori song, and not so incidentally Tereo, was used in a jazz-type context on record. To fit with the rest of the medley, Pokarakariana was jazzed up by turning it from the slow waltz that was its usual presentation in the 1920s to a jaunty foxtrot. <laughs> at that, but I'd like to remind you all that this is an American man who'd lived in Britain for most of his adult life. He was here for four months in total. He may have seen one or two Māori groups performing. He was learning this mostly from sheet music, and he manages to get the pronunciation pretty damn close to what we would consider correct today. So the first holy loco, oh actually before I go on to the next bit, um, for anyone who's danced to Pukaira Kariana as a waltz, trust me, I know the disconnect you're all feeling right now hearing it as a foxtrot. It took me ages to get over that. <laughs> the first wholly local jazz recording was made by Epi Shalfoon and his Melody Boys in 1930. This is a fascinating recording because it's a musical featurette, essentially an early music video rather than a record. So we can see how they perform too. Now I've written for this for audio culture, so you can read more details there. But very briefly, the film was made to advertise the Melody Boys ahead of gigs around the North Island. They play the popular Māori song, E Poro Taitama E, aka um, He Poro Taitama, uh, by the vocal group, the Tahivis, which they jazzed. This signifies two critical things for New Zealand jazz of this period. Firstly, that there was not yet a solidified American-oriented jazz repertoire in New Zealand. Secondly, that for the Melody Boys, locally written material, importantly Maori material, was a normal part of their jazz repertoire. This is important. Because this musical feature was an advertisement, Shalfoon would have wanted to hook the audience with something that was immediately recognisable as being part of the Melody Boys oeuvre. The combination of Māori song and jazz arrangement is, I believe, Shalfoon's way of localising jazz in New Zealand. So this is um, a digitised version of the film um, that appeared on the internet many years ago now um, uh, from the film archive, which is now Ngā Taonga.
Ladies and gentlemen, I wish to introduce to you Rotorua's famous jet. to authenticity there. So jazz's dance was both a specific dance, there was a dance called the jazz, um, the instructions are there in fact, um, as well as a dance style born uh, in the 1920s, born out of the ragtime dances of the 1910s. This was not the polite pre-war style of dancing which kept space between partners' bodies and had explicit sequences of steps. This was up close and personal, with, as historian Georgina White has noted, the dancers' bodies pressed together like a kiss. The dancers were faster paced, you may have already noticed that, and had smaller steps, allowing for a crowded dance floor. And although there were set steps, they were frequently improvised, a true anything-goes situation. So ladies no longer had to ask a man to wait for a man to ask them to dance. They could partner each other. As you can see, there's a pair of ladies dancing together, um, deciding on who was leading and who was following. Or if they were feeling bold, ask a man directly. There was also the new practice of cutting in, whereby a man or woman could cut into a dance and with the lady's approval, whisk her away from her current partner. This negated the need for um, uh, chaperones and dance programs, um, and if there was a chaperone even. As the 1920s progressed, more women went out unchaperoned, particularly, particularly if she had independent means. This was a boon for women who managed to defy family pressure after the war and remained in or entered the workforce, giving them more scope for escaping society's pressure to conform. The flapper, of course, is an extreme example of the sense of freedom through jazz, and I'll talk more about flappers later. But other women who did not consider themselves flappers probably also found a sense of relief at being able to perform independence in one more aspect of social life. The term jazz didn't just apply to music and dance and design aesthetics. It was also a fashionable advertising buzzword to describe emotional qualities or fashionable items that the consumer simply must have. Advertising using the term jazz during this decade emphasized both the negative and positive of jazz and jazzing, music and dance, such as sore feet, messy hair or perspiration, to sell their products to the supposedly jazz-obsessed public. Women in particular were targeted by companies that incorporated the word jazz into the advertising. For example, there's nothing like tis before and after jazzing to soothe one's tired feet. Or, do you dance? Of course you do. You could jazz to the end of the earth. However, you need to use Owen's dancing powder to create the best floor on which to jazz. And during the season of jazz, winter, when frivolous flappers were out for fun, taking a chance in the chill night air, if said flapper caught the flu, a serious concern so soon after the influenza pandemic, 
All she had to do to help endure the flu was to dose herself with Wood's Great Peppermint Cure. Woods, in particular, played on the subject of flappers, jazz, and the flu with a wide range of amusing poems for their advertisements, which encouraged the reader to actually read it rather than flick past it like so many other advertisements. Um, and as a side note, Woods Great Peppermint Cure has over 50% alcohol in it, so you're not going to be feeling any pain sipping it. <laughs> Although the majority of extra-musical jazz advertising appears to have targeted women, men were also included and were encouraged to use a certain brand of hair cream to set their hair before a jazz party or to learn how to jazz, no, uh, jazz by mail order, no musical partner required. And if life became too much for men or women and the nerves became all jazzy, then to cure the universal jazz, just take Marshall's Phosphorine. As a single dose, bucks one up tremendously. The type of advertisements that, are used in that use jazz as a marketing buzzword were wide and varied, everything from hair cream to alarm clocks. The one thing that the majority of these advertisements have in common is the way they used the term jazz. The activity most associated in this advertising was dancing, and the emotion that was connected was excitement. By connecting their products to what they thought consumers desired materially and emotionally, companies hoped that their products would be the ones that were chosen by consumers. Now, of course, I can't talk about jazz and the jazz age without talking about the good old moral panics. And at the same time that companies were targeting women as their primary audience for jazz and jazz-inspired products, moral and religious organizations were emphasizing the dangers of jazz. Many moral and religious evangelists opined a return to a moral golden age without all these new technologies, entertainments, and distractions destroying society. The organisa these organisations believed that the post-war ills could be cured by going back to a simpler time. Jazz in particular was on the hit list as the cause of so much that was wrong with post-war society. Specifically, jazz was perceived to be a modern melody, a diagnosable illness, my titular jazzy nerves. This was excitement verging on hysteria, distracted attention, or any heightened emotional response that was not considered in the parlance of the day hygienic. Today, we would describe this as ADD, ADHD, manic depression, or perhaps bipolar disorder. In the press, the emotional aspects of jazz were channeled through morality panics and scandals. And there were several aspects to these panics, music, dance, alcohol, drugs, sex, and gender. I like to say that before there was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, there was sex, drugs, and jazz. And like rock, people used jazz as a way to rebel and to find refuge from the expectations from proper, of proper society. There were many emotional intersections between sex, drugs, alcohol, and jazz, which were frequently associated with the theater generally, and jazz, especially jazz dancing specifically. Now, as I have already noted, cabarets were frequently willing to bend or break the law regarding the dryness of their venues. It was easy enough for men and women to discreetly carry in flasks, and venues were willing, for a small fee, to provide appropriate vessels from which to drink. Venue managers tacitly disapproved of drugs, but those of the high-end cabarets mostly ignored patrons selling or procuring drugs on the premises, so long as they were discreet. Dealers who wished to be seen as part of the smart set would regularly frequent cabarets, making it easy for patrons who wished to procure drugs to do so. 
Other dealers would frequently in verons of dance halls, but outside rather than inside, as lower middle class venues had stricter views on their patrons' behaviour than the high-end cabarets. Until 1928, co cocaine was still legal in New Zealand and available over the counter at chemists as a painkiller for toothache. So while it was a fashionable drug, it was not one that needed less than legal means to procure. The illegal drugs of choice in the 1920s were cannabis and opium derived, hashish and morphine, and that new drug on the block, heroin. They were all in particular demand by the decadent smart set. In all of these scandals and panics surrounding jazz, the focus was primarily on the behavior of young women rather than young men. Young women were considered to have a weaker moral fiber and were more easily swayed by anything new, modern, or illicit, unless they were properly protected from evil by their parents and brothers. The panics surrounding sex focused on young women far more than young men, and women attending dances unchaperoned were seen as being particularly at risk for pre- or extramarital sex. During the 1920s, the tabloid New Zealand Truth was filled with lurid tales of girls and young women falling from grace at dance halls, and still more about girls identified as flappers turning to a life of crime, although, of course, the links between jazz and the crimes they committed were flimsy at best. Throughout the 1920s, there were multitudes of scaremongering articles about the effects of cabarets on the, quote, nebulous morals of young flappers, end quote and occasionally one about a young man whose social downfall was due to jazz. If a flapper managed to avoid social ruin, Truth certainly tried to convince her that no man would want her as a wife because she would project an air of jaded boredom and would have none of the energy or wholesomeness that a man wanted in a wife. Don't know about that one. <laughs> Conversely, New Zealand Truth also promoted jazz as a fashionable lifestyle alongside its articles on the downfall of women due to jazz. These were articles defending the flapper as an independent modern woman who was not falling from grace in any way, shape or form. She held down a respectable job. She sent money home to help out her parents. And while she enjoyed jazz, cabarets and nightlife, did not overindulge and was wise enough to stay away from intoxicants. As noted earlier, the 19, as the 1920s progressed, more women attended dances unchaperoned and in some cases were able to take financial and social control over their lives, including their sex life. While the connections to jazz may be loose, the jazz cabaret did provide women a setting in which they could use sex as a way of performing modernity and independence away from, so, from society's strictures. Less lurid than the truth headlines, uh, but still provoking moral panic, were the articles and opinion pieces in the daily newspapers that decried the supposed deviancy that regularly occurred in commercial dance halls. These articles vigorously championed sobriety, modest behavior, and dress, and campaigned against the evils of modern living, in particular, modern dancing in, the com in commercial dance venues. The tour by Salvation Army General Herbert Booth, who damned all dancing as being sinful and physically dangerous, added impetus to, to organisations such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union to campaign against the evils of modern living and spawned a number of articles and opinion pieces in support of General Booth's views. 
While these articles did not focus, as Truth did, on the social downfall, they certainly played on the fear that young people, especially young women, would court social downfall without proper guidance, mostly from their fathers. On the flip side of this moral panic, however, is the Dance for Health movement, with proponents advocating all forms of dance, including one-steps, foxtrots, and the other jazz dancers, as being excellent exercise. These articles were often in reply to moral evangelism articles, and in particular, in reply to General Booth's speeches. Interestingly, this movement also included a number of senior clergymen of various denominations, who while they disapproved of commercial dance venues, they did not condemn dancing and thought it was a physically, emotionally, and socially healthy activity if done in the proper atmosphere, such as a private dance. In fact, one prominent clergyman in Auckland went so far to, as to state that he rather liked a foxtrot. Several articles on this matter appeared in women's columns and explained in detail the physical and mental benefits of dancing. Now, not if this sounds familiar. Dancing in general was thought to, to improve one's physique and posture. It was a good treatment for anyone suffering from a respiratory condition. It was also believed to be good for anyone suffering from depression and also to improve mental acuity. These are all things that are still said about dance today. For, for jazz dancing specifically, the foxtrot was considered to be a perfect balance between physical and mental activity, and the one-step dances were simple enough for anyone with the proverbial two left feet. Historian Philip Blom has said that in the 1920s, quote, jazz somehow embodied everything that had changed and more. It embodied the fact that nothing was the same now as it had been in 1914. End quote. As I stated at the start of this presentation, the 1920s was a period of turmoil, and the tensions between one section of society wanting to return to a simpler pre-war golden age, and another part wanting to embrace modern life, um, were a large part of what made the 1920s the jazz age. The reactions of people, art, music, design and technology during and after World War I are the essential causes of the Jazz Age. As we have seen, New Zealand was reacting in the same way to the same set of tensions. So yes, New Zealand did have both Jazz and a Jazz Age. What I've sketched for you here today is just a brief overview of a different way of looking at New Zealand in the 1920s. New Zealand society was not, as some cultural commentators ha would have us believe, merely reeling from economic crisis to economic crisis for the entire decade. Nor was New Zealand society bereft of entertainment, new technologies, or consumer culture. New Zealand society, like the rest of the world in the 1920s, was experiencing an enormous relief from the bound, release rather, from the bounds of war that had taken so much away from society, and much of that was filtered through jazz and all its forms. Thank you very much. <laughs>